A beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. This every sister of the Bene Gesserit knows. To begin your study of the life of Muad'Dib, then, take care that you first place him in his time. Born in the 57th year of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. And take the most special care that you locate Muad'Dib in his place, the planet Arrakis. Do not be deceived by the fact that he was born on Caledon and lived his first 15 years there. Arrakis, the planet known as Dune, is forever his place. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Hi, welcome to episode one in a series of specials on the Dune universe. I'm Tony Tolado. A lot of elements go into this podcast, and I'd like to thank two right off the bat. We just heard an audio clip from the Dune audiobook, and that is courtesy of Macmillan Audio, and you'll hear more during the course of these episodes. Additionally, you'll hear interviews from the film, courtesy of Warner Brothers Pictures. Starting us off is that film's director, Denis Villeneuve. It's a book that has been with me since almost 40 years, and uh, it's a book that I, I read uh, numerous times through the ages. I mean, through my uh, uh, as, uh, from being a young teenager to uh, an adult, I, I, I went back to it from time to time, discovering new things in it. It's a book that is deeply rich and talks about a, a very uh, pr- profound subject like uh, uh, the development of a, of a young adult, uh, uh, how to find solace into the, another culture, how. how the curiosity and the, the capacity of adaptation uh, is the key to survive uh, and to the danger of blending politics and religious power, the beauty of nature and how we should, as human being, bring back uh, uh, some kind of sacred quality to our relationship with nature that uh, we've we lost respect of nature and uh, the impact of colonialism. It's, it's a very rich novel, multi-layered. And when you read it, you can discover new things, new things. And it's like, that's where the challenge uh, was. It was to try to honor the complexity. Dune is a simple story, but the, the, with a lot of background and a lot of depth and, and to honor that, that, that uh, complexity, all those details, multiple details about different cultures or different ecosystems. Uh, I needed time. That's why I decided to do it in two parts. It'll also be featuring conversations I've had with Brian Herbert and also Kevin J. Anderson, the co-authors of the Dune prequels, and also Scott Brick, who I call the voice of Dune and narrates the Dune audiobooks. And here is Brian Herbert on his father, Frank Herbert. And my dad was basically, I asked him, well, what religious, uh, you know, what religion do you believe in? Because we didn't have any organized religion when I grew up. And, and dad said he was closest to being a Buddhist. So here's a Republican uh, who was close <laughs> to being a Buddhist. And uh, I saw him lead anti-war marches of University of Washington students where they took over the freeway in Seattle. So he was a complex guy. And... And Dune shows that in particular. All the it's a great adventure story, and look at all the layers. Oh yeah, that of politics, religion, oh, yeah. philosophy. I mean, so he he was a very deep man and very hard to to get to know. From the film are Timothy Chalamet, who is Paul Atreides, and Zendaya, who is Cheney. Paul's a young man who already has a certain pressure on his shoulders. Uh, 
to one day be the ruler of the House of Trades. Uh, I'll inherit that position from the Duke Leto, who's played by Oscar Isaac. Towards the very beginning of the film, based on the prophecy of the Bene Gesserit and the scene of the Gum Jabbar, which if you haven't read the book, that literally meant nothing right now. <laughs> He's put on this path that was not predestined for him, it was predestined uh, for a young woman. Is on a journey to see whether he can he can uh, write what's wrong in the universe and write what's wrong on planet Arrakis on Dune. He mentioned the Gom Jabbar clip, and from the Dune audiobook, let's listen to it. Paul, this test you're about to receive, it's important to me. Test? He looked up at her. Remember that you're a duke's son. Jessica whirled and strode from the room in a dry swishing of skirt. The door closed solidly behind her. Paul faced the old woman, holding anger in check. Does one dismiss the Lady Jessica as though she were a serving wench? A smile flicked the corners of the wrinkled old mouth. The Lady Jessica was my serving wench, lad, for fourteen years at school. And a good one, too. Now you come here. The command whipped out at him. Paul found himself obeying before he could think about it. Using the voice on me, he thought. He stopped at her gesture, standing beside her knees. See this? From the folds of her gown, she lifted a green metal cube about 15 centimeters on a side. She turned it, and Paul saw that one side was open, black and oddly frightening. No light penetrated that open blackness. Put your right hand in the box. Fear shot through Paul. He started to back away. Is this how you obey your mother? He looked up into bird-bright eyes. Slowly, feeling the compulsions and unable to inhibit them, Paul put his hand into the box. He felt first a sense of cold as the blackness closed around his hand, then slick metal against his fingers, and a prickling as though his hand were asleep. A predatory look filled the old woman's features. She lifted her right hand away from the box and poised the hand close to the side of Paul's neck. He saw a glint of metal there and started to turn toward it. Stop! Using the voice again, he swung his attention back to her face. I hold at your neck the Gondrabar. The Gondrabar, the high-handed enemy. It's a needle with a drop of poison on its tip. Aha, don't pull away, or you'll feel that poison. Paul tried to swallow in a dry throat. He could not take his attention from the seamed old face, the glistening eyes, the pale gums around silvery metal teeth that flashed as she spoke. A duke's son must know about poisons. It's the way of our times, eh? Musky to be poisoned in your drink, harmless to be poisoned in your food. The quick ones and the slow ones and the ones in between. Here's a new one for you. The Gom Jabbar. It kills only animals. Pride overcame Paul's fear. You dare suggest a duke's son as an animal? Let us say I suggest you may be human. Steady. I warn you not to try jerking away. I am old, but my hand can drive this needle into your neck before you escape me. Who are you? How did you trick my mother into leaving me alone with you? Are you from the Harkonnens? The Harkonnens? Bless us, no. Now be silent. A dry finger touched his neck and he stilled the involuntary urge to leap away. Good. 
you pass the first test. Now, here's the way of the rest of it. If you withdraw your hand from the box, you die. This is the only rule. Keep your hand in the box and live. Withdraw it and die. If I call out, there'll be servants on you in seconds and you'll die. Servants will not pass your mother who stands guard outside that door. Depend on it. Your mother survived this test. Now it's your turn. Be honored. We seldom administer this to men, children. Curiosity reduced Paul's fear to a manageable level. He heard truth in the old woman's voice, no denying it. If his mother stood guard out there, if this were truly a test, and whatever it was, he knew himself caught in it, trapped by that hand at his neck, the Gom Jabbar. He recalled the response from the litany against fear as his mother had taught him out of the Bene Gesserit rite. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. He felt calmness return. Get on with it, old woman. Old woman? You've courage, and that can't be denied. Well, we shall see, Sarah. You will feel pain in this hand within the box. Pain. But withdraw the hand, and I'll touch your neck with my gomjabar. The death so swift, it's like the fall of the headsman's axe. Withdraw your hand, and the gomjabar takes you. Understand? What's in the box? Pain. He felt increased tingling in his hand pressed his lips tightly together. How could this be a test, he wondered. The tingling became an itch. You've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap. There's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. The itch became the faintest burning why are you doing this? To determine if you're human. Be silent. Paul clenched his left hand into a fist as the burning sensation increased in the other hand. It mounted slowly, heat upon heat upon heat upon heat. He felt the fingernails of his free hand biting the palm. He tried to flex the fingers of the burning hand but couldn't move them. It burns! Silence! Pain throbbed up his arm. Sweat stood out on his forehead. Every fibre cried out to withdraw the hand from that burning pit. But the Gom Jabbar. Without turning his head, he tried to move his eyes to see that terrible needle poised beside his neck. He sensed that he was breathing in gasps, tried to slow his breaths and couldn't. Pain... His world emptied of everything except that hand immersed in agony. The ancient face inches away, staring at him. His lips were so dry he had difficulty separating them. The burning. The burning. He thought he could feel skin curling black on that agonized hand. The flesh crisping and dropping away until only charred bones remained. It stopped. As though a switch had been turned off, the pain stopped. 
Paul felt his right arm trembling, felt sweat bathing his body. Enough. Cold were hard. No woman child ever withstood that much. I must have wanted you to fail. She leaned back, withdrawing the gom jabbar from the side of his neck. Take your hand from the box, young human, and look at it. He fought down an aching shiver, stared at the lightless void where his hand seemed to remain of its own volition. Memory of pain inhibited every movement. Reason told him he would withdraw a blackened stump from that box. Do it. He jerked his hand from the box, stared at it, astonished. Not a mark, no sign of agony on the flesh. He held up the hand, turned it, flexed the fingers. Pain by nerve induction. Can't go around maiming potential humans. There are those who'd give a pretty for the secret of this box, though. She slipped it into the folds of her gown. But the pain. Pain. A human can override any nerve in the body. Paul felt his left hand aching, uncurled the clenched fingers, looked at four bloody marks where fingernails had bitten his palm. He dropped the hand to his side, looked at the old woman. You did that to my mother once? Ever sift sand through a screen? The tangential slash of her question shocked his mind into a higher awareness. Sand through a screen. Here's more on Paul Atreides from Brian Herbert. The story of Paul Atreides is the mythological journey of, of a hero mm-hmm. uh, following many um, points of famous heroes. Uh, for example, there's Paul has an unusual birth. There's yes. an attempt, attempt on his life when he's young. He marries the king's daughter, in our case, the emperor's daughter. But, but there's probably 20 points of, 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 of data points where Paul Atreides' life matches those of, of the great heroes such as Ulysses. Uh, in fact, uh, for anyone that wants to dig into that further, there's a book published by Lord Raglan hmm. in 1936 called The Hero. Okay. And he goes into a lot of those points, and, and it'd be interesting to just look at that. There's 26 or so points, and I believe Paul hits on about 20 of them. Timothy Chalamet tells us about the Atreides family. Well, they're an honorable people or a prideful people. They're the, the envy of the of some of the other planets in some way, or not the envy, but the other planets look to them for, for leadership and their honor and their straightforwardness and their uh, and their valor. It's almost like a Spartan society, but I'd say minus like the fringe violent elements. And, uh, or not, not, not fringe, but the, the, the emphasis on a, a, a barbaric violence. But in every other way, it's, it's, a, it's a, proud, uh, a proud warrior culture. And they've been on they've been on the home plane on Kaladin for a long time, and they're forced to move at the beginning of the film, go to Arrakis. The strengths of the Atreides are you know relate to be their naivetes maybe and their weakness and their straight and, and their honesty in some way and, and in some ways are taken advantage of by the Emperor by the Imperial Order by by the Harkonnens. I mentioned the Dune audiobooks and they're done by Scott Brick. Here is Brian Herbert on that talented performer. Scott Brick has been involved in, in a lot of these of these readings. Initially, it was Tim Curry was doing our yes. our house series, and, and boy, that was that was fun too. Yeah, yes, what a great voice. Yeah, and and now now Scott Brick has gotten involved, and I I've seen Scott four or five times down in Los Angeles just in the last uh, week or so, and I, I asked him, well, you, you've probably what recorded me maybe a hundred books, and he said, well, no, four hundred. Wow. <laughs> so he's very active and very well known and very talented. 
Well, Scott calls me before he does each book, and he asks me about certain pronunciations. In Mm -hmm. fact, going back to the first TV series that uh, Richard Rubenstein and John Harrison uh, were involved in, they asked me to come up with some pronunciations because they wanted to make sure that they were faithful to the way my father wanted the the words to sound. Nice. And so I went back and found a bunch of recordings that my dad had done that are kind of obscure now, but he was reading from his books. And so then I did my own uh, phonetic pronunciation guide, which I, I passed on for the TV series, and then I gave that in turn to Scott Brick. So, and now Scott and I are enlarging upon that with each book, and 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 we work through the pronunciations very carefully. And here is Scott Brick on being hired to narrate the Dune audio series. When I got hired to do this series uh, in 2001, working on the Butlerian Jihad, the publisher said right after we finished that we want you to go back to volume one of the franchise uh, frank's original and do that one too and i don't know why i who would have thought that as a brand new two-year-old narrator a guy who should have been saying yes sir thank you sir how much sir how high sir you know um i would have had the stones to say no i don't want to do this unless i can do it the right way i think frank deserves this i think frank deserves for people to get it right I think Brian deserves this. I think their entire family, their descendants deserve this. I think the fans deserve this. I think the publisher, everybody involved, deserves to get this right. Mm -hmm. So they, thankfully, they put me in touch with Brian Herbert. And that's really what began this whole audio franchise, was Mm -hmm. we spent four and a half hours on the phone going over just the words from the original volume. And uh, I typed them up. And I didn't even email them to him. I faxed them to him. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> and he, what we would then do is I would put my phone on speaker and I had a cassette deck running again, how old this, how long ago this was. Yeah, I know. And I would say, you know, is it Harkonnen? Is it Harkonnen? And Brian was really clear and he played me the definitive proof he said, my father always said Harkonnen. I know this to be true because he recorded those Cadman recordings back in the 60s and 70s. Wow. Frank himself has, has told us how to pronounce these words. Does this series really belong to Frank Herbert and now his descendants? Or does it belong to us because it's entered the public space? Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. And from the Dune Audio, again courtesy of Macmillan Audio, is the Baron Harkonnen and Piter de Vries. It was a relief globe of a world, partly in shadows, spinning under the impetus of a fat hand that glittered with rings. The globe sat on a free-form stand at one wall of a windowless room, whose other walls presented a patchwork of multicolored scrolls, film books, tapes, and reels. Light glowed in the room from golden balls hanging in mobile suspensor fields. An ellipsoid desk with a top of jade-pink petrified alaka wood stood at the centre of the room. Very form suspensor chairs ringed it, two of them occupied. In one sat a dark-haired youth of about sixteen years, round of face and with sullen eyes. The other held a slender, short man with effeminate face. Both youth and man stared at the globe and the man half-hidden in shadows spinning it. (laughs) There it is, Piter. The biggest man-trap in all history. And the Duke's headed into its jaws. Is it not a magnificent thing that I, 
the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen do? Assuredly, Baron. The fat hand descended onto the globe, stopped the spinning. Now, all eyes in the room could focus on the motionless surface and see that it was the kind of globe made for wealthy collectors or planetary governors of the Empire. It had the stamp of imperial handicraft about it. Latitude and longitude lines were laid in with hair-fine platinum wire. The polar caps were insets of finest cloud-milk diamonds. The fat hand moved, tracing details on the surface. I invite you to observe. Observe closely, Piter, and you too, Fade Ralpha, my darling. From 60 degrees north to 70 degrees south, these exquisite ripples, their coloring does it not remind you of sweet caramels? And nowhere do you see blue of lakes or rivers or seas, and these lovely polar caps, so small. Could anyone mistake this place? Arrakis truly unique. A superb setting for a unique victory. And to think, Baron, the Padishah Emperor believes he's given the Duke your spice planet. How poignant. That's a nonsensical statement. You say this to confuse young Fade Rautha, but it is not necessary to confuse my nephew. The sullen-faced youth stirred in his chair, smoothed a wrinkle in the black leotards he wore. He sat upright as a discreet tapping sounded at the door in the wall behind him. Piter unfolded from his chair, crossed to the door, cracked it wide enough to accept a message cylinder. He closed the door, unrolled the cylinder, and scanned it. <laughs> well? The fool answered us, Baron. Whenever did an Atreides refuse the opportunity for a gesture? Well, what does he say? He's most uncouth, Baron. Addresses you as Harkonnen. No sire et cher cousin, no title, nothing. It's a good name. What does dear Leto say? He says, your offer of a meeting is refused. I have oft times met your treachery, and this all men know. And? He says... The art of Conley still has admirers in the Empire. He signs it Duke Leto of Arrakis. <laughs> of Arrakis? Oh my, this is almost too rich. Be silent, Piter. Conley, is it? Vendetta, eh? And he uses the nice old word so rich in tradition to be sure I know he means it. You made the peace gesture. The forms have been obeyed. For a mentat, you talk too much, Piter. Playing the Baron in the film is talented actor Stellan Skarsgård. Well, the character, he's is incredibly boring. It's just a normal bad guy, and he's, uh, he, has the, he has one nuance, and that is bad. What intrigued me was, first of all, I wanted to work with Denise, uh, who is very interesting filmmaker and who creates always creates a universe of his own if you gave him enough physicality you could create such a strong presence that he would sort of cast a shadow over the entire film which is necessary for a bad guy so that interested me weapons master is gurney halleck great casting here with josh broom i was a big sci-fi guy 
I was a big Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov guy, so I actually had read, I hadn't read it from beginning to end, but I had read major passages of it. And I love the absurdity factor, you know, again, it's like, you know, Denis, I heard Denis say it the other day and I thought it was, I can usually find something descriptive that, you know, matches it or enhances something. And Denis completely beat me to the punch and he says, it's, it's sci-fi meets medieval. And I loved that. I thought that was extremely accurate, you know? And there's something very primal and kind of primitive about it. And yet it's sci-fi. And I just love that. I love the, the anomaly of it. One of the key moments in the book is the S.H.I.E.L.D. practice. Here is a Macmillan audio clip of that scene. In S.H.I.E.L.D. fighting, one moves fast on defense, slow on attack. Attack has the sole purpose of tricking the opponent into a misstep, setting him up for the attack sinister. The S.H.I.E.L.D. turns the fast blow, admits the slow Kinjal. Paul snapped up the rapier, fainted fast, and whipped it back for a slow thrust, timed to enter a shield's mindless defences. Halleck watched the action, turned at the last minute to let the blunted blade pass his chest. Speed excellent, but you were wide open for an underhanded counter with a slip tip. Paul stepped back, chagrined. I should whap your backside for such carelessness. He lifted a naked kinjo from the table and held it up. This in the hand of an enemy can let out your life's blood. You're an apt pupil, none better, but I've warned you that not even in play do you let a man inside your guard with death in his hand. I guess I'm not in the mood for it today. Mood? What is mood to do with it? You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Mood's a thing for cattle or making love or playing the balisette. It's not for fighting. I'm sorry, Gurney. You're not sorry enough. Halleck activated his own shield, crouched with Kinjal outthrust in left hand, the rapier poised high in his right. Now I say guard yourself for true! He leaped high to one side, then forward, pressing a furious attack. Paul fell back, parrying. He felt the field crackling as shield edges touched and repelled each other, sensed the electric tingling of the contact along his skin. What's gotten into Gurney? he asked himself. He's not faking this. Paul moved his left hand, dropped his bodkin into his palm from its wrist sheath. You see a need for an extra blade, eh? Is this betrayal? Paul wondered. Surely not Gurney. Across the room they fought, thrust and parry, faint and counterfeint. The air within their shield bubbles grew stale from the demands on it that the slow interchange along barrier edges could not replenish. With each new shield contact, the smell of ozone grew stronger. Paul continued to back, but now he directed his retreat toward the exercise table. If I can turn him beside the table, I'll show him a trick, Paul thought. One more step, Gurney. Halleck took the step. Paul directed a parry downward, turned, saw Halleck's rapier catch against the table's edge. Paul flung himself aside, thrust high with rapier, and came in across Halleck's neckline with the bodkin. He stopped the blade an inch from the jugular. Is this what you seek? Look down, lad. Paul obeyed, saw Halleck's kinjal thrust under the table's edge, the tip almost touching Paul's groin. We'd have joined each other in death, but I'll admit you fought some better when pressed to it. You seem to get the mood. He grinned wolfishly, the ink vine scar rippling along his jaw. 
The way you came at me. Would you really have drawn my blood? Halleck withdrew the kinjal, straightened. If you'd fought one whit beneath your abilities, I'd have scratched you a good one. A scar you'd remember. I'll not have my favorite pupil fall to the first Harkonnen tramp who happens along. Paul deactivated his shield, leaned on the table to catch his breath. I deserve that, Gurney. But it would have angered my father if you'd hurt me. I'll not have you punished for my failing. As to that, it was my failing, too. And you needn't worry about a training scar, too. You're lucky you have so few. As to your father, the Duke could punish me only if I failed to make a first-class fighting man out of you. And I'd have been failing there if I hadn't explained the fallacy in this mood thing you've suddenly developed. And in fact, he wrote... First, this was to be a magazine article about how sand dunes are stopped uh, by the... Uh, were stopped by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The dunes were, were going over highways near Florence, Oregon. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture had a program of planting poverty grasses on the slip faces of the dunes to stop them from moving. And so Dad went down to do a magazine article on that, and then, when he didn't get that published, in fact, his agent said there wouldn't be much interest in that subject, it have limited interest. But Dad then did the outline of a novel that he called Spice Planet. Yes, that's right. And Kevin and I wrote that novel, uh, published it last year in the Road to Dune uh, collection. But that was a, a more straightforward science fiction story. Mm-hmm. He, Dad set that aside and then went to the much more complex novel, Dune, which was then rejected by 23 publishers because it was too slow and too complicated, so they thought. But it was a warning about the environment, and that's what made it such a huge hit in the early 70s, five years after it was published. That oh, yeah. It was picked up by the environmental movement. Oh, but sure. Dad, Dad was also warning about uh, the danger of following charismatic leaders huh? and uh, leaders that lie. He didn't trust our leadership, and... Dad felt we could follow, you know, someone with charisma over the edge of a cliff. In fact, one of the rejection letters was from an editor who said, I may be making the mistake of my of my publishing career and rejecting Frank Herbert's Dune, but I can't get past the first hundred pages without being confused and irritated. Jason Momoa is Duncan Idaho, and he tells us his favorite moment from the film. I feel like one of my favorite moments on the movie was when... Uh, it's a whole lineup, and it's got me and Oscar and Timothy. I think Steven's there. I think that's it, but we're just, um, we're, um, I'm not sure what the, the area is called. We're just like basically in the, in, the, in, the, in the boardroom, and Javier walks in, and he looked like Mick Jagger. Like he just strutted in so cool and so just so much power. And he's such a beautiful person. Like he's completely available and there for you, and, and the nicest family man he's beautiful beautiful but he walked in with so much swagger and so much just he has it that's oscar winner that's what it is and uh he walked in and just delivered it and just eyed down all of us thank god i was on his side and then we were friends but it was beautiful to watch that man act it was just like i was in awe i'm I'm really thankful i didn't have to say too much because i was just like geeking out smiling really what's central to the story is the family of Dune, and here is Scott Brick. And Beverly was the woman who never got enough credit. Hmm. Beverly gave up her career, her writing career, her successful That's writing right. career, to raise their children and to support yeah. Frank 
when he wasn't making enough money to feed his family, and which wound up, of course, paying off when Dune became a massive hit. But then you have Brian, who's left, even though even though he was in his 30s when Frank passed, it's not enough time. I'll tell you what, um, uh, for those who know the series well, if you have read uh, Dune 6, which is Chapter House Dune, there was a character, an old man and an old woman, spent a lot of time in the garden, and um, uh, you knew that they were important to the story, but you didn't quite know how. Well, when Brian and Kevin wound up finishing it based on Frank's notes, he assigned who those two characters were. And it makes so much sense when you when you when you've read the entire, you know, uh, you know, the entire saga. He continued the theme of gardening. Brian, is it just me? Or every time those two characters, the two elderly gardeners, uh, appeared. I just kept thinking of your parents. There was this long pause and he said, oh my God, my parents adored gardening. Of course it's them. And that is part one of my look at the universe of Dune. There'll be two more episodes with more comments and clips, courtesy of Warner Brothers Pictures and Macmillan Audio, in addition to the interviews I've done with Scott Brick, Kevin J. Anderson, and also Brian Herbert. Until next time, this is Tony Tolato. A commercial-free version of this episode is available on Sci-Fi Talk Extra, available on the Podbean app for one U.S. dollar or seven Podbeans.